All right, so we are continuing uh, through Psalm 103. Uh, we're going to take three weeks, so this is the second week um, going through this psalm. I mentioned last week this is my favorite psalm, um, so really excited to just spend some time in it. And if you were with us last week, if you remember, uh, in this psalm, David, the author, is calling on himself, his soul, to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. He's trying to stir and arouse and compel himself, his soul, and everything that's within him to bless the Lord, which means to worship the Lord, adore the Lord, give honor and recognition to the Lord. So he's trying to stir himself. And to do this, he begins to remind himself and us of the benefits, of God's benefits. So verse 2 says, forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. And I said last week that we praise and bless things that we find good and lovely and beneficial. If any praise that we give to something that we don't actually think is good is a false praise. We're not really praising it. We have to see that something that someone is, is good. And so it's absolutely critical that we not only believe in God, and believe that Jesus died and rose for our sins, but also know that God is good. Through and through, truly, fully, completely good. This is, you might say, one way to just summarize what the Christian life is about. Just continuing to believe and profess and proclaim God's goodness. His varied goodness in, in all of his, his attributes. And sometimes, as we all know, this comes very naturally. Uh, it's easy to do. We're very aware of all of his benefits, but sometimes it's a fight to do this. Sometimes it's an act of the will. It's an act of faith. And we need reminders, kind of like this psalm. And so that's what this psalm is doing. From verse 3 on, David walks us through the benefits of God. We began to cover a few of these last week. We're going to cover the section from verse 6 through 13 today. And this, this is my favorite part of this psalm. It contains just some wonderfully comforting, um, beautiful language about God's compassion towards his people. Let me just give you a quick word kind of on the, the flow or outline of this section, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So everything hinges on verse 8. Verse 8 is a um, direct reference to Exodus 34, which we covered last week. We read last week. I'm going to read it again today. Um, verse 8 is a direct reference to, Psalm, to Exodus 34. And verses 6 and 7 kind of lead up to that. And then the rest of these verses unpack what verse 8 says about God. Okay? So we'll start in verse 6. These are the benefits... Some of the benefits of God. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. So this is David thinking back to all of the great workings that God has done for the people of Israel throughout their history. They had been oppressed. They had been the oppressed ones as slaves in Egypt. They had experienced injustice at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But God had heard their groaning and stepped in and 
as David says, worked righteousness and justice for them. He had done something about their situation. Uh, the word translated justice here um, refers to both judgment and justice. And so in rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt, God had judged Pharaoh for having no fear of God and having no compassion towards God's people, and he had brought justice to the Israelites. God does what is right. He judges justly, righteously. But of course, David isn't only looking backwards and saying God did this once in time. He's also saying that this is who God is. This is what God continues to do. He comes to the aid of those being treated unjustly, especially those among his people. Wherever the image of God is denied in humanity, wherever people are disregarded and abused and taken advantage of and used for merely personal means, wherever those who have no voice, no power, no ability to stand up for themselves are oppressed, where God's own people are persecuted for their faith and faithfulness. God knows and sees and cares about these situations. And whether in this life or in the life to come, he will vindicate those who are his. He will make all things right. He will bring justice where there is injustice. He will work. He will accomplish. He will bring about righteousness and justice. And we can hope in this. And as he does this, and as he continues to do this, part of what he's doing is revealing who he is. And that's what David says in the next verse, in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And so as God does his mighty works, as he rescued uh, Israel out of Egypt, as he does other mighty acts of salvation, he isn't only working to improve our situation, he's also working to reveal what he is like, who he is. And so as you read, this is why part of the reason there's so much benefit in reading through Scripture. As you read through the Old Testament and how God acts towards his people and the New Testament and how God acts towards, towards the church, even though all of these things don't happen specifically to us necessarily, we can read them with an eye to seeing the character of God. He's making known himself through the way he acts. Oh, God is a delivering God. God is a present and active God. He's a hearing God. He's a powerful and mighty God. He's a compassionate God. We can see what he's like through the way that he, he acts and works. But God doesn't only reveal himself through actions and through works. He also reveals himself through his words. God tells us in words what he is like. He doesn't leave us guessing. So I said that this psalm draws heavily on Exodus 34, which is perhaps the most significant passage where God reveals in words what he is like. And leading up to Exodus 34, Moses prays to God. And he says, show me your ways. And then he says, show me your glory. He's pleading with God, if I'm going to speak to this people, we need to know who you are. What kind of God are you like? And God responds, and he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. 
and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so whatever comes next, whatever God is going to say, we should be thinking this is God's ways, God's glory, God's goodness, God's name. This is what God is like. And so in Exodus 34, starting at verse 6, here's what God says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And if you were to read through the rest of the Old Testament, you would see this bits and pieces of this come up again and again. This becomes a regular confession for God's people. Here's who you've said you are. God plainly tells them, here's who I am. Here's what you can bank on. Here's what attributes you can expect from me. And so one thing that we, can, that we must see here is that God wants to be known. God calls us to know him and to know him rightly, and he can be known, not fully. Our minds can't accomplish that, but rightly. And so the agnostic position that we can't really know anything about God with any sort of certainty is only legitimate if God is not a revealing God. If God doesn't want to be known, and God hasn't done anything to make himself known. Of course, we can talk about the human process of the Bible being written and passed down and how the canon came to be formed, and I, that can be valuable, and I, I, I really appreciate that. But if God desires to be, made, to be known, intends that we would know him, and has gone to great lengths to make himself known, both in words and in deeds, then we can't claim ignorance. God has told us what he is like. And he's preserved this revelation over thousands of years. And we can be confident in this, not because human beings are trustworthy, but because God is a revealing God, and he wants to be known, and he is sovereign over all things, including human beings. He has made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. God has made himself known that we might know him. That is at the very heart of what he wants for us and calls us towards. And then in verse 8, David sums up the heart of what God has had revealed in Exodus 34. Um, and again, you see these phrases repeated throughout the Old Testament. So verse 8, which is the heart of this psalm, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But what is God like? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. What can we expect God to be towards his people? Merciful and gracious, slow, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We talked about steadfast love a little bit last week. This is the important Hebrew word, hesed, which means loyal and faithful. God keeps his promises. He binds himself to his people. He bears with them even when they sin. 
And then what this, the next several verses in this psalm do is unpack what this means. That God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I said this is my, the, my favorite part of my favorite psalm. Uh, this is one of the best places to come when you are wondering or doubting how God thinks of you or who God is towards you, what his attitude or disposition is towards you. There's just some wonderful, beautiful language and truths in this section here. So we'll walk through three to these. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, there are two errors when it comes to thinking about God's anger. The first error is to think that God doesn't really get angry, that there's nothing like wrath in him or connected to him. Perhaps we want to make God seem more palatable, easy to swallow, more small and man-centered. But the Bible is clear that God gets angry uh, with a righteous anger, a, a, an anger that is connected to his justice, to what is right. It's not an emotionally driven, out of balance, out of proportion kind of anger. But still, there are some downright terrifying verses about God's anger. Just for one example, in Nahum 1, we read, Who can stand before his in indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. And then look how verse 7 begins. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And, and, and it can say that because God's anger is always a right anger. God can be both angry and good because his anger is what is right and just. It's never as I said, out of control or out of proportion. And the fact that he gets angry towards sin and evil and injustice means that he is a stronghold and refuge, as it says, to those who are at the, who are being oppressed by sin and evil and injustice. We can, of course, understand something of this. When you hear of or witness something truly evil, you feel anger. And you were right. You want something done. You want justice to be done. Well, God feels that perfectly, more perfectly than us. He feels it in all the right situations and in all the right proportions. And if he didn't, if God were not truly angry in a just and righteous way, then we could not trust him. We should not trust him. And he would not be worthy of our worship. The problem, of course, is that we don't want or don't think that God's anger should ever be directed towards us, that our sin would ever be deserving of God's anger. Well, the good news is that there is a way to be rescued from his just and righteous anger, but it's not through denying that God gets angry. It's not through minimizing our sin and minimizing God's holiness. That in fact, minimizes our very need for a Savior, which is what God desires to be. No, the way to be rescued from God's just and righteous anger towards sinners 
is to, to hear the news and run to his mercy and compassion for sinners. That he was, is what he wants to do for us. To learn that God himself desires to be glorified by saving the very people who have sinned against him. We are invited to turn in humble faith to the very God we have offended and cast ourselves on his promise to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, steadfast in love. But there is a second error in thinking about God's anger. Sometimes we might assume that God is always a bit angry. We are tempted to think that God is always a bit disappointed and fed up with us and just ready to burst forth with anger the moment we mess up. This, most emphatically, is not what Scripture gives us. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what God has revealed. While God does get angry, it's not as if he's sitting around looking for reasons to get angry and just rain down wrath. Uh, that is perhaps what we might expect. Uh, that is, it seems, what many people groups who have uh, created their gods and imagined what their gods are like, how they imagine God to be. You know, the drought has come, various things, God must be angry with us. But the picture of God we get is the reverse. He is, in fact, bursting forth ready to overflow with compassion and pity and mercy. His anger is slow. It does not last to all who come to him. Um, we will read shortly down, down a few verses that God's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. There is no similar statement about God's anger and wrath. It's been pointed out that descriptions of God's character in Scripture are are imbalanced. They're not balanced proportionally between his anger and wrath and justice on the one side and his love and mercy and compassion on the other. They're always disproportionately weighted in favor of his love and mercy. You saw that in Exodus 34. Of course, he will be angry and bring justice to sin and evil, and we shall worship him for that. But he is overflowing with compassion ready to pour it out to all who come to him, to all who fear him, even to the most hardened and wicked sinners. The other thing that that verse says, he will not always chide. Probably not a word you use all that often. Uh, chide mean, here means to bring a lawsuit or charge against someone uh, to be writing their case, if you will. Come on, get it together. Look at what you've done. Of course you've failed me again. That's just what you do. Perhaps your inner dialogue does this. Perhaps you sometimes cast this on God and assume that that's how he is thinking towards you. Well, that would be wrong. That is what the devil does. The devil is hoping we fall and fail, reminding us of our failures, tempting us to sin, but God is on our side, fighting for us, cheering us on. Not because he believes in us, he's smarter than that, but because he himself strengthens and equips us for what is good and right. Do you know, do you know that? Do you feel that? Do you know that 
This is who God is to you, that even in your sin, he is fighting for you and not against you. Now, it's helpful to draw an implication here, um, because if this is who God is and how God is to us, certainly one implication is that this is how we ought to be towards one another. Are we always chiding one another? Do you chide your, your wife or your husband? Are you, are you always chiding your children, getting on their case? Are you just waiting for them to fail and hurt you yet again? And when they do, throwing it in their face. It may be hard to hear, but we need to understand that when we do this, and we all do this, we are being more like the devil than God. This doesn't mean we overlook sin, don't call sin, sin. But are we fighting for one another or against one another? Are we, who are much less holy than God, willing to be compassionate and tender towards those who sin against us, just as God is towards us? What about keeping your anger forever? I have heard many people say that things like, I just can't forgive so-and-so. I'll never forgive them. And, and, and we know, if you've been in that situation, that it, it, can, it can be really hard to do. It can feel so righteous and just to hold on to bitterness, to treat the person that has hurt us harshly, coldly, to slander them to others, to cut off the relationship. But if that's how God has acted towards us, if that's how God did act towards us, we would be done for. We have hope because he will not keep his anger forever. And this leads to what David says next in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, if you are someone that has like a, uh, a fairness flag, you're always raising a, your, well, that's not fair. That, that should be raised right here. The charge that is often leveled against God is that's unfair. How dare you judge me? How dare you save some but not others? Various complaints of fairness. But if fairness is really our concern, then this is what is unfair. God doesn't give us what our sins deserve. He doesn't give us the judgment that our sins call for in a perfectly righteous and just court of law. Now, there is a sense in which this is true for all people. For every person living, every minute they have alive is a grace of God. Fairness would be an immediate pouring out of his judgment. But God continues to send his rain and cause his sun to shine on even those who ignore him, on even those who hate him. But the full comfort of this verse is, of course, for the people that God has saved by his grace. For his people, for those who come to him, God sends Jesus to the cross to pay the horrible price for their sin. This verse is ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Christ, where, Jesus, where God deals with Jesus according to our sin. Jesus willingly deals with the problem and punishment of our sin. We have the assurance not only that God is a forgiving God, 
but that God has dealt with our sins completely, in a just way, sufficiently, finally, once and for all. Remember, God will, from Exodus 34, by no means clear the guilty. He will be just. And so he bears the weight and punishment of our sin himself so that we can come to him cleansed and confident. If you are in Christ by faith, your sin and guilt is done and finished. It is in the past. It can no longer condemn you. And then in the last part we'll cover today, in these next three verses, uh, David, David gives us some comparisons, metaphors, similes to help us grasp the depths and intensity of God's love for his people. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So you get an image here that is intended to help us grasp or just begin to grasp the greatness of God's love for those who fear him. It can't be measured. It can't be contained. That's the point, right? The point is not go get your, your measuring stick and measure the heavens above the earth, and at that point, God's love stops. No, the point is there's no end to it. It's deeper and wider than we can imagine. In the New Testament, we read, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In Jesus, grace is always one step ahead of sin and guilt. So for those who fear him, there should be no suspicion that one more fail or one more moment of weakness or doubt will be the end of God's love. It's not how it works. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And this is an image to help us know that God's forgiveness is real. It's legitimate. It's tangible. He's not holding our sins above our heads or, if you will, in his back pocket ready to bring them out anytime he's upset. He's cast them as far away as possible. They cannot condemn you. They cannot come back to haunt you. He's really dealt with your sin and guilt. And the last verse we'll cover today, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this is, of course, an image of the tenderness of God's heart towards his children. We may have a difficult time grasping this because all of our fathers and all us fathers are sinful and don't consistently show tender compassion towards our kids. But you know what it's talking about. You know when, it, you, when you see it. Perhaps when a child is upset or hurting or embarrassed and a father gets down on their level, speaks to them gently, lovingly, puts their arm around them and brings them in and affirms their love and commitment for them. This is something of the image that God would have us use for imagining his compassion towards us. As, as great and mighty and transcendent and powerful and holy as he is, he has this kind of compassion, this pity, tender affection for his people. Do you know God as a compassionate father? 
Now, there's one thing in here that, that's come up a couple of times that we haven't really talked about. Notice that it is specifically those who fear him who are repeatedly said to have such hope. Uh, we talked about the fear of the Lord a couple of weeks ago. The, the right fear of the Lord, as you read through Scripture, is a fear that sees not only that he is great and powerful and the one that we've sinned against, but also sees that he is good and merciful and the one that we can draw near to in confidence. The, the right fear of the Lord is a fear that moves towards God, that leans into him, that draws near to him, that comes to him for life and comfort and salvation. This is the kind of fear of the Lord that pleases the Lord. And if we were to read this as Christians, that is, in light of the cross as the culmination of God's wisdom and purpose, then this coming to God and fearing God must be a coming to God and fearing God in Jesus. These wonderful promises of God's steadfast love are ours only in and through the death of Jesus on the cross. The saving and cleansing and justifying work of Jesus on the cross is what the whole Bible points us to including this psalm. And so let me show you three ways that what we just read here connects to and points us to and, and is fleshed out in the cross of Christ. First, the cross is the greatest display of this revealed character of God. The cross is the greatest display of this character of God. In the cross, as Jesus dies willingly in our place for our sin, we see in the clearest clarity and the clearest language that the Lord, in fact, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus died not to make God like this, but because God is like this. For God so loved the world that he gave. God didn't need his arm twisted in order to be loving. Secondly, the cross is the satisfaction of the just wrath of God. The, the, the cross is not only a sign that God loves us, but also a sign that God is holy and righteous and, in the words of Exodus, will by no means clear the guilty. He will not let sin just slide. He will not lower his standards. He'll not say, well, you tried your best. That's all I ask. No, that's not how God works. God will see that every sin gets its just and right payment which is death and separation from God. And so on the cross, we see Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiencing the death and separation and judgment that we deserved. There is nothing worse than being forsaken by God and bearing the judgment of sin, and this is what God did for us in Jesus. And third and finally, because of this, the cross is the assurance of this revealed character of God to those who fear him and come to him. The cross is the assurance that this is who God will be to us. We are told in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, those who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. 
the assurance we have that God is towards us what this psalm says he is, that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, not dealing with us according to our sins, having a love that is higher than the heavens are above the earth, and forgiving us as far as the east is from the west. As a father, he's compassionate towards his children, so God is compassionate towards us. The assurance we have that this is who God is, not just in general, but to us, is the work of God on the cross, and our faith in him, and our being found in him alone. Our assurance is not that we've done enough, that we've had good intentions, or that God doesn't really get angry and judge sins, or that God is just fair. No, our assurance is that God has done everything necessary in the person and work of Jesus, in glorifying his grace to bring us confidently and forgiven and cleansed into his presence. And so as you meditate on this psalm, and I encourage you to do that, there's, like I said, there's just some wonderful truths in here. Hope in its truths through the cross of Christ. In Jesus, and, and your faith in him, and you being found in him, this is not just the objective character of God, but the character and promises of God towards you, his beloved child. Let's pray.